Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited today to be joined by a fellow instructional designer. I'm gonna I'm gonna wear my instructional designer hat at least in the introduction. We have Dr. Luke Hobson with me. Luke is the host of the Dr. Luke Hobson podcast, and he's also the author of What I Wish I Knew Before Becoming an Instructional Designer. I'm excited to get into all of this, but before we do any of that, I just want to welcome you to the show. Luke, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you so much, Mike. It's absolutely awesome to be here. I'm glad we're finally able to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot that we've been almost booked for quite some time. And truth be told, we do similar things. We're out there with podcasts and it's like a, a team of collaborators, potential collaborators is the way I tend to think about the, the podcasting. And you've moved into YouTube and other dimensions of this, which is really fun to get into and all of it around instructional design to a large extent, which is going to be the main topic that we're diving into together. Although hopefully we'll a lot of on-ramps and off-ramps to who knows where we may go. But before we get into that, I always like to hear in our guest's own words, what got you to this point in your professional life? Can you catch us up on what got you from point A to point here? Absolutely. So I always have to start back with high school because it was a critical moment, which I will eventually speed up as I keep on talking about this. But for a lot of people listening out there about instructional design and about education, of course, the assumption is that this person must have loved education growing up. This is how they got to be where they are today. And I could not have been further from that truth because I hated school. I actually failed out of high school because mm -hmm. I never saw the connection of how is what I'm going to be learning about going to help me in the real world. Mm -hmm. And every single time I ever asked that to a teacher or to anybody else, I was always either scolded or told you're going to hear about it when you're older. And those dots never connected as I got older. So after failing out and went back to summer school three times, finally got enough credits to transfer to somewhere else. And this place offered music courses. So that is what I wanted to be when I grew up. And just to jump in, the term of art there is relevance, right? So we're talking about the relevance of your instructional experience, your learning experience. You had the disconnect. And then by virtue of music, you were able to connect back to why does this matter to you? Exactly. And that's how I design all my courses to this day is that I try to make everything as crystal clear and transparent to my students as much as possible because mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to ever go through what I went through mm -hmm. of why am I taking medieval literature now for the fourth time this year? Like, what, why? Yeah. What am I learning about? What, how is this going to help me? And everyone's like, oh, you'll figure it out later. And I'm, here I am. Being like, I still don't know. Like, right. great. Thanks, guys. So the music courses was something I wanted to do though. That was whole, I wanted to be a guitar player. I was already taking lessons and I was actually pretty good. So my goal was I wanted to go to Berkeley College of Music in Austin mm -hmm. and going to a school that finally offered music courses was like, oh my gosh, light bulb moment. I can actually bring my guitar to school. I get to talk with other people who have the same interests as me. Everyone's playing in a band. It was like, thank you. Finally, yeah. I have something to look forward to. Of course, my grades were so bad. Berkeley didn't take me. Yeah, fun. <laughs> which understandable. I was like, yeah, I did awful. I'm like, all right, I get it. So I went to something else as far as for uh, another university. I pursued graphic design and then eventually got a master's in marketing. Hmm. Didn't really realize that those would actually come in handy later on down in my career. But as I was going to this university, they started to absolutely develop and grow in the online learning space. And that was hmm. Southern New Hampshire University. Oh, wow. See them. So if you've seen them on the news, because they're yeah. up to I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of students they have at this point in time. They're just absolutely crushing it in yeah. the online space. And I was there right at that boom. 
mm-hmm. when that started and they were needed somebody to be the online academic advisor for brand new students to wow. welcome them in, to coach them, to guide them through the courses. Yeah. So myself, along with all the other different advisors, it's, that's what we ended up doing. And I started to develop this real passion of online learning because mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like I get to be able to talk with these students, talk with these kids, really help them out, learn about their goals. And of course, whenever they got their degree and their diploma, like the greatest day of their life kind of thing. I was like, all right, this is awesome. But then I was just like, who's making these courses? Mm-hmm. Like someone has to be making these. Yeah. And I ended up networking with everyone at the university, including a group of instructional designers. After that point, I was like, that's the goal. I want to do that. If I can get paid for a living to design the online learning experience, sign me up. That's what I wanted. Of course, that wasn't in the cards yet. And I was denied from every single instructional design job I possibly applied for. And then finally, after a while, I was able to go and work at Northeastern University as an instructional designer. They gave me the opportunity. They gave me the chance to be able to take my design abilities, what I knew about advising, what I knew about learning, Mm -hmm. put them together in this type of a unique way. And I started off with my first project being able to work on an accelerated degree program between General Electric and Northeastern University. Oh, wow. I was kind of baptized by fire. Yeah. Here's this massive project. Go figure this out really quickly. And I'm like, okay, time to go figure this out. And I did, I did, and I loved it. And it was awesome. And I had a great leader and a great team. And then I just took what I learned and I brought that over to MIT. And that's where Mm -hmm. I still have been years later. And then I kept on talking about instructional design after that, because I love it. I think it's awesome. And I kept on chatting more about it, which eventually led to the blog, the podcast, the YouTube channel, writing a book, making my own courses and everything else. So now my life has become instructional design through this very weird journey. So that's where I'm at now. (laughs) I I like it. I like it. I think I, I followed you all along the way there. And it's really interesting to think about as you were on that journey, the field of instructional design has also been on a bit of a journey where when I was initially doing instructional design, it was like the early 2000s, that term e-learning and instructional design, that kind of language has been around, you know, since the, the days of CD-ROMs and, and even earlier back into the 70s and, and before. But I think a lot of things changed in the broader understanding of the role and the relevance of it, getting back to that big R word, in in the last couple of years when we were faced by the challenges of the pandemic. And if you and I both may have thought online learning was the future in 2019, we may not have thought we would have gotten to the future as far and as fast as we have in the last couple of years. You're walking the walk in the space of building learning products and understanding instructional design as a trend in the last few years. It's probably bigger than a trend, but in terms of the movement towards instructional design, any thoughts on what it's been like in the last few years or what it was like prior leading up to it and then how that's changed? Yeah, I I think it's so funny is that every time that we talk to someone who is new, who's trying to transition over into instructional design, the first thing that I always hear about is just how they're like, oh, I had no idea this was a career or a profession. It's like, this is cool. And I was like, yeah, I was like, but our field actually originated back in World War II. Mm-hmm. with the army trying to find a way to be able to train the troops yeah. in a more of a cohesive manner. So it's like instructional design has been around for such a long time, but we didn't really have that spotlight on us until more with the rise of everything with e-learning back in 2000s and obviously with the University of Phoenix and all of that started sure. to come about. Then the online learning world started to take off. And then of course, right before the pandemic, we were growing naturally as one does. But then as soon as everything happened with the pandemic, we were forced to innovate and we were forced to do something new where our backs were up against the wall and saying, okay, so 
now what do we do? <laughs> because it was like the instructional designers on every team, any organization, no matter what, whether education, corporate America, or for nonprofits, or for government agencies, or like whatever it is, every single type of sector was like, what do we do? Where yeah. do we go from here? And the biggest thing, which I know since you've done this also for a while too, is that you, you can make any, anyone can make a online course. Doesn't mean they're going to design it. That's the biggest thing. It's just like, just like anyone can teach a class. But if your consideration of teaching is lecturing for an hour and a half, you're going to tell me there's a better way of doing it right. because, you know, there is. So same thing. So finally being able to say like, all right, what are we going to be able to now finally do to flip this switch of instructional design? And the biggest thing that I always tell somebody at first when they're like, I want to go into this field. What do I actually do? Is just please, for love of God, find the meaning in your work and find exactly what do you want to do? What are your passions? What are your goals? Because just like with anything else, instructional design, at the end of the day, it's still a job. Yeah. I love it. I love what I do, but it's still work. It's still mm -hmm. a career. So please find what you're passionate about because even if you just go over into this field and after a year or so, you're burning out because you're like, oh, this isn't what I want. I'm just making these kind of trainings. That's boring. I don't have any support. I wish I had known ahead of time what the organization was actually like. So yeah, do that now. Please right. do my research now right. and talk with others and learn about what they actually go through on a daily basis. Yeah. And to me, it's reminiscent. I'm, I'm looking at the guitar in your backdrop. It's a little, I think there's another element of instructional design that's a little more like the singer songwriter ethos, where if you're building this stuff, but you're also teaching it and you have a mission behind what you're doing, that really does resonate. Coming out of the history of Sal Khan is also another luminary in the field of e-learning who began by just tutoring his niece and nieces and nephews over the internet in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And to some extent, things haven't changed that much in terms of the building of the stuff. But as long as you really care about what you're doing, and particularly if you're a singer-songwriter, there is the other element of instructional design, which is when you have to partner with a subject matter expert yes. and figure out how to flow what their domain knowledge is into the right learning objects. Any perspective on those two different flavors? Oh, of yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, it's huge. That's always the biggest thing. And I just launched a new course about how to collaborate and build relationships with subject matter experts. And I just did that because of this topic. Like it is so well known of how do you work with others? And that's the biggest thing is someone the other day was mentioning about how they were like, I don't think that instructional design is a sales role. And I'm like, actually, I think it is because mm -hmm. whenever I am talking to a subject matter expert, the thing is for understanding their perspectives is that they think they are doing what is in the best interest for the course and for the students. Mm -hmm. But you also are thinking the same thing. You're like, I know the online learning experience. I know the target audience. It should actually be this way. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to use your powers of being able to influence, to persuade, to convince, to get buy-in. Those are all critical points when it comes to just working with an, another person. Just right. you know, not even instructional design. It's just working with other people. It's like the human skills element. We need to talk about that. And that goes into that then as far as for how do I get this person to come over to my side? Or what do we meet in the middle? How do we actually do this? And sometimes it really isn't anything that is going to be like this major movement that you have to go and do is just trying to understand more about their perspectives and yeah. their sides of the story. Because I've worked with some professors who absolutely thought that what I was doing with my job was going to replace them. 100%. Right. right. 
there will, Oh, you are the new up and coming person who's making online learning a thing. I don't do online learning. Therefore right. you're scary. You're replacing me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I need you. Right. <laughs> I don't know the subject matter. I would just be Googling it if it wasn't for you. Like somebody has to come in with the content, but then I can tell you about best different types of learning strategies that we can use in order to make something a more incredible experience. And that way you're not doing it on your own, Mm -hmm. because if you're doing it on your own, what's going to end up happening is that I've taken a ton of courses back in the day. I took courses back in 2007 for the online learning space. And every single course was structured in the exact same way of buy this textbook, do the discussion board post, submit the essay at the end. And that is not an optimal learning experience. I am so bored. I'm going through the motions. You don't know where I need help and when. It's just, there's no human element involved in online learning. But if I can work with you to be able to talk more about scenario-based learning or project-based learning or using VR or using any type of new tool or platform or whatever it is, and you're going to be like, wow, I had no idea it could yeah. be like this. And I'm like, right. yes, and we can shine the light on you to right. make them see how awesome you are with your teaching that's going to accompany that with the right setup behind the scenes. Yeah. So absolutely, working with SMEs 100% is a vital part of what it is that we actually do. Yeah, because work in the 21st century is almost always a team sport. And in that case... It is a little tricky to be Scottie Pippen to the Michael Jordan ego-wise, but also if you are a working instructional designer, part of what I always found interesting about it was the variety of domains you can snap into. Because what's interesting is whether it's electrical mechanics or it's behavioral economics or psychology or math, they all ultimately need to be translated for delivery through whatever instructional platforms you have at your disposal. And there really is a skill set that develops over time to become expert at tailoring it. Now, now, now suddenly it's a tailor or, or it's almost like a concierge service when you're really dealing with the luminaries. But then frequently the luminaries, best case, they can get into that collaborative team-based exercise where in a lot of the projects you work on, I imagine it's more than just you and a, a SME. There are other members of the collaborative team who are helping to build the learning product. Can you lay yeah. a little bit of that out for us? Yeah, because I, I work with everybody. When I am designing something, I am involved with talking with the marketing team when talking with everyone for accounting to make sure that obviously I'm on budget, we're setting the goals correctly talking with the multimedia team, as far as for like our video director, the video animator, for some people, they have to do that themselves. They're like, they're an ID team of one. I am not, I'm fortunate. And I I actually do have a a number of people I work with to help me from behind the scenes, but also from advising customer support, engineering team, IT, like everyone is involved in every single step of the process because I want them to be involved. Because if something, if we have some crazy, awesome idea that I agree, the SME agrees, the multimedia team agrees, and we're like, here we go. And then we bring it to engineering and they're like, yeah, that tool is going to break our platform. We're like, yeah. oh, now I, I, we just spent weeks saying this is what we're going to do. But of course, if we had the early conversations with them about this is the new tool we're thinking about, here's how we want to structure it together, what's going to happen. And if you get that insight first, you're going to save so much time and everything. So yes, it is 1000% a team type of sport going back to your analogy. Yeah. And I have definitely worked with quite a few Michael Jordans and that's fine. You know, if, that, if, that, if you just want me to pass you the ball, yeah. but, but at the end of the day, we win the game. Yeah. I'm for it, man. Let's yeah. do it. As long as we get the chip at the end. 
Can exactly. I, I... Then it's a-okay. And the thing too, with working with subject matter experts or other people on the team or whoever it is, you are there as a type of a learning expert in your own right. Mm -hmm. They are certainly a learning expert in their own right as well, but you know about the online learning space or the training space, the L&D space, whatever it is. And you can talk about how you can innovate in a different way that perhaps they didn't think was real or mm -hmm. possible. Going back to the instances of the pandemic, one of the things that blew my mind was that because of um, everything that's happening with COVID-19, more and more people are trying to go and apply for med school. So everyone now is becoming a doctor, wonderful, wants to go and save the planet. But then, of course, what do you do when you're in full lockdown and they can't go and do anything as far as, so let's say, like uh, dissecting for cadavers? Yeah. Like, wait, what, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And the thing was, one school in California figured it out where they're like, this is what we're going to do. We are going to actually scan in all of the cadavers. We're going to give them their own types of QR codes that students can use for an Oculus scan it in, see the cadaver, and then they can actually see the individual organs for that cadaver and allow them to actually see the differences per the different type of people. Yeah. And it, like, and that's not in a textbook, right? You know, like that was this, a team who was innovative was like, how do we solve this problem? Well, let's give this a try. Yeah. <laughs> and then they did it. And we did yeah. it on the fly and it worked and we still do it to this day, mm. which is insane. Mm. So yeah. yeah. And it, it, that example is a great one too, because it, it, it combines the two aspects of what I think are central to instructional design. One is the actual learning science. What's the right way to teach this? How do you make sure there's a little bit of rigor and structure and design thinking that applies to the components you're putting together? I, I wanna get a little bit of your perspective on that uh, next. And then yeah. you're connecting that to the technology and what's new and emerging in media, which I think would be a great space for us to get into afterwards. But before we get to the, the new tech whiz bang coolness, the other thing that's really interesting that I've learned about over the years is some of the underlying psychology and neuroscience and learning research that powers great instruction. Can you catch us up on some of the gems, some of the tips, some of the things around the learning science side of instructional design that you find to be particularly useful or applicable to building learning products these days? Absolutely. And, and that can be a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> so I'll just try to narrow down a few things. For, so for some things that to me are just more of common sense, but you need to be able to figure out how to structure it within a course itself for it to actually make sense. Mm -hmm. So for instance, let's say that we're going to be taking an entire course. We have an outline of what it's going to look like. If you were to individually put these different types of boxes and line them up that would make the sequence of what somebody actually goes through within the course for a week, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm dissecting something that you have and it's going to look like it's just going to be like reading, reading, video, discussion, and then you expect someone to do that for 10 hours, it's like, all right, I guarantee that's not going to stick. Yeah. You need them to do more. So when it comes to exploring, as far as like the readings and the videos, I'm like, great, like that should be there. But that really should only be there about 20% to 25% of the time for the course. Other than that, you need to be doing, you need to be involved. And that's actually how we learn. So from mm -hmm. moving to there, well, then it makes more sense to be able to go towards something that is going to be more of a practice-based type of an activity. Something that's going to be an ungraded 
for uh, activity for you to be able to practice in a safe space where you're not going to be evaluated and you can just try and go and, and figure this out on your own. And of course, get guidance to feedback from there. But then you need to put that more into an application phase to actually say, okay, now is time to test the merit. Did I actually learn this? How would I actually do this in the real world and give that a shot in a real assessment? But then after that comes more about evaluating than your performance of how did you do or how did your fellow peers do? If you want to do more of a peer-based activity and to work with other folks and to see what they are doing because you care more about them at their level because it's not the professor. Now it's somebody at your own level you can relate to and you're working and having that connectivism piece of working with one another and learning from others. That is going to definitely drive and reinforce those points home. And then if you wrap that up with reflection, talking about everything you just learned about and thinking back to it, giving you your own type of allowance to, to pause, to think for a moment there of just what I learned about, how can I apply this into what I've done before in the past? What would I perhaps have changed or corrected? And then thinking about the future. What am I going to do now that I've actually learned about this information? Mm -hmm. And then the process starts again. Mm -hmm. So you can add in all of these very small, and I am definitely, I'm watering this down like a thousand percent, by the way, for learning science, just about that way. It's, it's going good to be, though. You're, uh, abs you're also <laughs> abstract, you're abstracting it for us. Yes. Like yeah. I, I, cause I could definitely, like, I could talk to you more about going into, cause there's other things that was just like, some things just absolutely blow my mind as far as for how I even passed everything for uh, my comps with my doctorate. I end up using something as far as sort of space repetition. I didn't even know what that was. And I was just like, huh, this seems to be working. And then come to find out there's an entire section about that learning science. And I was like, oh, fun fact. Yeah. But, but it's stuff like that where you don't need to go so far down this rabbit hole of going into every single white paper and every single book. There, there are plenty of great and fantastic books you can read about learning science. But I found that those have just been some of the basics that when working with SMEs and talking about that at that level of the exact same way that I just say it, they're like, I got it. That makes yeah. sense. I'm like, yeah. perfect. And now we can move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of it is almost like first principles. It's a, a way of approaching the design process that builds a culture that's going to ultimately be successful. And I think part of that is ideas like space repetition, uh, growth mindset, and cognitive load. Like just to throw those three out there. Of course. Desir yeah. Desirable difficulty right in the mix there. Yep. Re relevance. But there's not too many concepts in learning science at its foundation and it is somewhat accessible and in some ways the the instructional designer frequently is an evangelist of a lot of these principles and then they have to map that to the tools you have to deliver it which can be widely varied and that's one of the reasons I really enjoy following what you're doing Luke is that you're almost always sampling from the buffet and seeing what's new and emerging. One of the trends that's out there that we've talked about is Zoom fatigue, where like there are certain platforms and ways of working that just become routinized to the point of becoming a rut. And I've always thought of instructional design in part to be earning, constantly earning the learner's attention. And in order to do that, you need to be sampling and mixing things up in interesting ways. Can you talk a little bit about that side of the work? I know we're staying kind of high level, but this is, yeah. that's the nature of the conversation. It, but it absolutely is because if you are just going to have something that actually, let's go back to the point about Zoom burnout, because yeah. I noticed that everyone knows that every single person, the minute you say the word Zoom, you're going to see the person's face drop where they're like, ah, great. I'm going on over Zoom call. Cause that, that's just the way of the world is right now. Like I've only been back to campus once in the last couple of years, which yeah. is crazy to think about where I'm like, I'm not that far away, but I am whatever. So the thing is, 
when I was thinking about trying to make a couple of different types of courses, I always would go and think about what does somebody do outside of education? Because for education, there seems to be like these barriers that we have up of, oh, you're in higher ed. Therefore, you must use this platform because everyone else uses that. I'm like, oh, I, I hate that platform. So what else can I use that's better? So I looked for other places. And for one of the things that I went to back in 2019 was that we went to a conference at MIT. And the conference was on something called GatherTown. And I was like, what is GatherTown? So I go and I'm, I'm signing into this and I have to go and I have to make my own little avatar and I have all these different options to either make it look like me or I can go and, and dress up as like a hamburger or a snowman. Like I can do whatever I want. I'm like, okay. Then I log in and I'm thrown into this conference where I see the big MIT logo at the bottom. To the right-hand side is a big like arrow walkway to go find the keynote speaker and I'm like, okay, it's going to go there. So I walk over to see the keynote speaker. I sit down. All of a sudden, all these little embedded Zoom videos basically pop up. And I was like, oh, all right, I'm not alone. All these other people are near me. And then I leave there. I go to a poster session. And then same thing. I'm walking around. And it felt like a real conference because every mm. single time that I got next to a person, but what happened is that it's based on proximity of the avatar characters. So if my little avatar character got closer to yours, then your little Zoom window starts to actually fade in and the audio also fades in with it. Mm -hmm. So now I can actually hear you and same thing if I wanted to leave the conversation as in real life, I would just walk away. And that was happening with all the poster sessions. I walk up to a poster session, I would just push X and then all of a sudden, boom, there's all the, the presenters talking about everything. I was like, okay, this is cool. I'm like, yeah. so I'm like, how can I put that in my class? This worked for a conference, but I know, especially nowadays, we're all talking about networking and communities and relationships and everyone wants to be able to connect with other people. And the ways that we typically have are like, they're clunky. They're like, they're okay. So I started to do that in my courses where I'm like, all right, this is what we're doing. We're meeting on GatherTown <laughs> and make your avatar, take your time, figure it out. And this has been so cool because the, for the first like 10, 15 minutes of our entire calls or presentations, or whatever, everything so far from the students has this been about, wow, this mm. is different. This is so cool. It reminds me of if somebody took a, an old school Super Nintendo Zelda game and mashed it with Zoom, this is what it would make. I was like, yeah, like it's, it's different. So is this something to increase learner engagement to not just have the same type of repetitive nature of things when it comes to platforms? Because eventually they know there's a good way for that as far as for like, you have now learned, you have changed your behavior to know how to use this product and this tool for that. I'm thankful. But I also need to give you a curveball every now and again, because if I find something new and exciting and engaging, that I know it's going to help you. I don't want you to just be bored the entire time. So right. captivating that attention that you're talking about. And that's how plugged in together town, like a thousand percent. And you're, I would encourage folks to follow Luke for those types of tips, because there'll be other things like gathered oh, yeah. that are like yeah. the, the number of platforms that are emerging almost in response to Zoom's ascent. There was a lot of investment in the next Zoom, and there's so many different dimensions in which people are, are trying to solve those problems. Uh, to me, harkens back to Marshall McLuhan's famous quote, the medium is the message. If you're not thoughtful or intentional about your design choice, even if it is Zoom, I do a ton of stuff in Zoom. Sure. Just be intentional about it. Don't just absently slip into something without realizing you just made a choice. And then I think frequently, if you make the choice to try something different, something experimental and you know innovative, and then also get the buy-in from your audience to say, here's why I'm doing this, then it becomes more of a 
collaborative, co-creative experience. Yeah. And, and this is what has become so fun is that because everyone in education and everywhere else too, but just everyone is so accustomed to now Zoom that when I say, I want you to use this link to this other thing, it's always like, what's that? And I'm like, yeah. oh, I know, get ready. So for the course, which is something that is so cool, it's inside of Eduflow, which is a new, well, it's not new, but to me, is it's a newer learning platform that just looks, feels, and functions the way that it should. It's not the typical clunky learning management system where I'm like, why can't I do anything? Why can't I change? Like, why do I have to do it this way? But they have different types of video peer-reviewed based activities. So if I want students as designers to go and to make a sales pitch selling to a SME the idea of a new concept, you can record yourself, do the video, and then send it, and then it goes into a queue. And then yeah. other people have to watch the, the video, give you feedback, and then it keeps on going from there. So it's like we have the learning platform to do that. We use GatherTown to talk. We got rid of the typical concepts of everything must be a discussion board. They're still in there for some things. But we started to use Circle for our new type of conversation platform mm -hmm. because I want something that you're actually going to use. If, like, that's the biggest thing, especially for an optional type of activity of networking, talking with other people. Are you going to know how to do that on discussion board? Maybe. Are you going to be able to do something even better though, where you can actually emulate the type of thing that you've always done on social media with liking, commenting, sharing, subscribing? Like you want that feature in a educational type of communication platform, which is Circle. Yeah. So I started doing that for my courses or mm -hmm. Slack. I've used that a bunch of times too. Sure. Yeah. So. I just try to keep on doing this to not go. Now the thing is don't go crazy. I want to throw everything at you being like, look at this cool stuff. But also like, wait, wait, <laughs> people are going to drown and just trying to learn how to use a thousand new tools at a time. But yeah, that, that's the snippet of all the fun little things I'm working on for the last like month or so. Yeah, that's great. And it also reminds me of Lauren Buckman, who's he's the president of the art school of design in LA, but he wrote a book called make to know and what you do very much reminds me of that where you don't always know how you're going to make the thing you're presented with a new problem and then you're in that space of uncertainty and you don't really learn how to do it until you're actually doing it and i think a lot of people have a block they're just concerned about getting out there and starting to make it any advice for folks who are trying to figure out how to get started and i don't know how to do things and i'm, I'm not that confident any suggestions yeah. So, so you mentioned it before, actually, you said the words, which is fantastic. So I was going to repeat it is that you're going to be able to figure it out. That is the big thing that every educator knows about is that you don't have the answers. You don't know where to start, but you're going to figure it out because mm -hmm. you're going to, that's who you are. That's in the nature of everything. When it comes to making something that is going to be a product, one thing that I would highly encourage people to think more about is the iterative uh, design process. Being able to comfortably say it's not right the first time is something that in education is this, oh my gosh, what do you mean? It has to be perfect. It is accredited. We have to do da, 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 da. But you don't, like, you don't know. You need feedback from your students. You need feedback from SMEs and from other people. Like, you don't know if this is going to be 1000% perfect. And usually it's not. There's always mm. something you can do to make it better. So for just making a type of a prototype to say, I think we got the, the we have the right bone structure here. What do we do at this point? Let's let some people test it out. Let's get some feedback. Let's then take that and let's incorporate it. And then let's evaluate everything. How can we actually use the feedback now that we have it? 
Where can we go and explore a bit more? What can we realistically do? And then you put those ideas back into the prototype and you just repeat that cycle of yeah. constantly just prototyping, designing, evaluating, and you just keep on doing it again and again. And then finally, you have what you love and you're like, all right, we got it. It, it took us six months. It took us a year, but we got it. And now right. let's, let's go do the thing. Mm -hmm. So it's just that embracing feeling that it's uncomfortable. You have to confidently admit that you don't have the answers, which is something that I have been fantastic at MIT where I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go figure it out. And I also need your help to inform me because I, I don't have all the answers. And yeah. that has greatly assisted me in the figuring it out process. Yeah. And that sounds very much uh, a lot of the, the conversations I have about the future of work are very much this, where if you are truly innovating, no one's really done it before and they're novel problems, at least in your context. And you have to almost get a rush from that and, and lean into that in the best cases. One of the things that I know you're leaning into is new and emerging technology. This is where I would put my Oculus goggles on if I had room on my head. One of the things I know you're looking into is the metaverse and some of the AR, VR trends. I, I've called these simulearning. Any perspective from you on trends like that? Or we're now in the 2022 and beyond phase of the conversation, Luke. So anything you find of interest, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear as well. But I know we were talking a little bit about the metaverse. Yeah, absolutely. So something to it is extremely timely about everything, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. But Stanford actually just produced a new article that talked about how for the first time ever, they offered a only virtual reality course, you have to use an Oculus to be in the course. Mm. And that to me was just like, wow, like we've gotten there that now it says no, it's not like it's not just optional, or it's not just like a cool feature. No, it's required. The whole course isn't the headset. You can't leave <laughs> like, like you need to use the headset. And we finally got into that point, which I thought was something that was, the technology's always been there. The tech isn't the thing. Mm -hmm. And whenever someone says, oh my gosh, but it's going to cost thousands of dollars. It's going to do whatever. It's just, but that will all come and go. The price will fluctuate. It will change. Right now, you can get an iPhone for free. Think about that. Or before, it was thousands of dollars to buy one. There was no options. There was no nothing. Like We'll figure that part out. The thing that I'm really harping on is the fact that people have now adapted to that for their mindset to say, it's not weird to be sitting in my office with a headset for an hour to be with my class to make people think that that's not weird is what well, okay like we've gotten there so yeah. now what can we do and then yeah. that is where it's so exciting about the metaverse because of the fact that if we're going to have this new mindset where people are adapting to this idea more and more they're adopting it they're like okay maybe this is what we're going to do it's really not that far away and i saw that bill gates just said it's going to be three years from now the standard practice is going to be that we are going to be working remotely with the headsets on in the metaverse. Wow. That doesn't surprise me. It actually yeah. surprises me. It's going to take that long because I'm like, we're all talking about this now. We're talking about like we can already go and buy it and, and go into there. Like we can't yet. <laughs> we can just to some slight extent, but the full experience isn't there yet. So what I think is going to happen if you really want me to put my tinfoil hat on, talk about yeah. futuristic thinking here. So think about the different types of ways that we have for formatting for courses. So we have the online, we have hybrid, we have high flex, and we have face-to-face -face versions. I think there's going to be a fifth, and that is going to be within a type of a metaverse or in a type of a headset. That is where the entire course is going to pertain to. Mm -hmm. And when you sign up for the course in the first place, that is where 
every interaction happens. Not just that, like some of it is on like the virtual legs. Like, no, it's like you do literally everything into there. And that's the only way the course is offered for going forwards. Right. And Stanford already like, they're already showing that to be the case. But now I think this is going to expand upon every single subject, every school. It's just, it's just going to be a normal thing. And that to me is like a wild thing to actually think about, but it's not that far away. It's, it's really not. And what's amazing about what you're saying there is that all that stuff needs to get built. So if you're thinking about yeah. the, the future of work, I like to quote, you know, Wayne Gretzky skating where the puck is going. You want to get out ahead of these trends so that you're in a field and doing the type of work that can continue to stay relevant. But you wrote a book, What I Wish I Knew Before Becoming an Instructional Designer. You've engaged in some of that backwards thinking to look ahead. How do you stay ahead with these trends? What are you seeing out there? What does it mean for someone who's trying to build a career around learning science, instructional design? How much time do we have? Right, we can well, go down and chapter one in the beginning. What's what that entire book really does pertain to is that if I could actually just go back in time and to give myself all the, the wisdom and guidance and everything that I've learned about over the years, what would it actually look like? And it pertains to some things we talked about when it comes to working with SMEs, when it comes to learning, even when it comes down to how do you properly introduce yourself as an instructional designer. It's something that's so funny that now while the spotlight is on us and people know what it is that we do constantly, I still hear from some people where like I'm in meetings with other instructional designers and they'll introduce themselves in the project. And either a, they'll just assume that other people know who they are, which is not the case at all. Or B, they like kind of sell themselves short in a way where I'm like, yeah, you're still an expert. You're not like some kind of like lackey or something like you you still, you still are very valuable to this project. Don't diminish instructional design. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about that and also mention about how within the different types of, of roles of instructional design, because yeah, you're a learning expert, you're a relationship manager, you're a researcher, you're a tech wizard, you're a project manager, like you're doing all of these different types of things. So when it comes to, hey, I want to actually become an instructional designer, get ready to be a part of a wild world because this is what we do. We wear Mm -hmm. so many hats that when you see a job posting and you're like, why is there all these crazy things listed out? Yeah, it, it makes sense to me because of how much we do and different organizations also are looking for different things mm-hmm. because some people could 100% be super dial into something. Uh, I just saw a instructional design position at Google for their research lab. That is clearly going to be on the future of learning, using the latest of tools, innovating. That's what they're about. If you're going to become an instructional designer at a uh, local community college, that's going to be super different. Mm-hmm. But yes, you have the same title of instructional design, but there's so much more to it than that. So it is is so interesting to try to wrap your arms around the entire topic of just what are we in the general public's eye? And then of course, where are we going? Which I think is just going to now think more about we're going to start to splice into different areas, which it has with instructional design. And then now you're hearing more about LXD from learning Mm -hmm. experience design. Mm -hmm. And then of course we have the other arm of that with with UX, with UI, like all these other different fields, while not the same, they still come from kind of like the same origin. And then now they're just going off into different directions. So it's fascinating. Yeah. 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 It's a really interesting time. And, and, uh, good on you to be putting yourself out there as an instructional designer who wants to nerd out with the community, which is something that I've seen you do and I do appreciate it. And I think if folks are interested in this type of stuff, track Luke down, uh, Dr. Luke Hobson and Luke Hobson, you're out there 
across the internet. Your YouTube presence is something that's certainly picking up a lot. As we're concluding here, I've been on the record saying, I think we're entering a golden age of learning design and you seem like you're shaping up to be a showrunner of sorts for some of what's new and amazing that's on the horizon. Any concluding thoughts as we send our listeners back on their merry ways? Yeah, absolutely. The point of everything when it comes to what it is that we do, instructional design, online learning, is that you have this real chance to make an impact in someone's life. You're not always going to hear about it. Sometimes you're more behind the scenes, but being able to be the person who actually is the one who is wielding the wand, who can design the online learning experience and to change online learning for the better and for the masses from any sector. If you can make trainings better for employees, if you can make classes better for online students or whoever your target audience is, if you can change all of those things for the better, then, oh my gosh, our future is going to be so bright. And that's why I love talking about this so much because I can see the passion. I can see that people are caring. And now we just got to get them into this exact type of right space that we're all talking about. But we have the potential to really, truly do something crazy. And the next time I come on this podcast, if it could be a brand new revolutionary thing that we learned about from six months or a year from now, whenever it is that we didn't think was possible, but somebody figured it out. And now this is what we're all going to be talking about in the future. Great stuff. Dr. Luke Hobson, host of the Dr. Luke Hobson podcast. He also wrote What I Wish I Knew Before Becoming an Instructional Designer. Wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining, Luke. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And our listeners, hopefully uh, you're catching some of Luke's enthusiasm on your way uh, on your way out here. If you like what you're hearing, write us a review, share the pod, be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Mm-hmm.